Hi, I'm Michaela Loach. And I'm Rebecca. And this is the Yikes Podcast. everyone um so it's almost been wow. a year in lockdown what a fucking year oh what my gosh year. i feel like for me it's gone like it's been like an eternity and i've aged by like 40 decades but also it's gone by really really fast so yeah it's been it's been a you know it's been a year but um yeah we wanted to kind of i guess take that moment of covid like a year in lockdown and COVID anniversary to talk about like crisis and the normalization of crisis and like how like I've been thinking a lot about just like genuinely like how you know like last year when numbers started to rise slowly like there was obviously like we had very different feelings to what is happening right now and I feel like with a lot of people obviously there's still you know panic and there's still um a lot of like different feelings and emotions and for obvious reasons but I do think that um like the normalization of what's happening and the normalization of like like the death rates for example or just like people getting ill and like the long-term effects as well like that is just like something that a lot of us have like accepted and yeah so I guess we just wanted to to talk about that today and like what that means for our bigger you know other crises that we face as well and like what that means for us. Mm, yeah, I think it's something that's really um, both interesting and scary to like yes. um, observe of how yeah how much um, even though the the death rates and the infection rates are higher now than they ever mm. were. Um, so when we're recording this in in January, um, even though they're higher now than they were um, back at like the the peak at the start in March, mm. people definitely aren't taking it. I know I don't seem to be feeling like it's as serious as it was then mm. and maybe that's just me like experiencing that anecdotally but like it just feels like yeah people have got so used to this state of crisis that shouldn't be normal and shouldn't be like mm. okay and to an extent where people I think almost care less about it in a weird way I think it's a way in which you get kind of when you I guess if you're exposed to something that is scary and like traumatizing mm. in ways over and over and over I, I guess part of it is just like your brain having to be like how can I protect myself how mm. can I look after myself in this situation I'm go- not going to allow myself to feel the depth of what this is because if I do feel that all the time it's going to be overwhelming um, yeah. and whilst I'm like protection me- like protection mechanisms and stuff is important and looking after yourself is important I think we also need to check, out- check in on ourselves at what kind of things we've taken to be normal and mm. what kind of things we've taken to be acceptable behaviour and what and whether that is okay and right and Mm. I think yeah I think all of this has kind of shown how we need to reflect on that a lot yeah I feel like yeah it's super interesting especially with like the you know like protecting yourself and also Mm -hmm. I guess because we're still expected to do a lot of things at the rates that we did before pandemic and Mm. you know also with like other things going on like you're still expected to show the same possibly even higher productivity rates and you know, do that, do that, do that. So, like, in a way, mm. I feel like it's very normal for us to have a, like, survival mechanism of, like, let's just get through it. And, like, that's, like, almost like a mechanism of, like, I can't, like, almost like taking the numbers in doesn't actually do anything for me right now. And I feel like mm. that's actually in generally, you know, people often don't respond 
for obvious reasons like as well as to facts rather than like personal stories Mm -hmm. um and like more like emotions and stuff so you know just bombarding us with for example like different rates often is less I guess in a way like effective than actually like hearing you know like like personal anecdotes and stuff so I think there's there's definitely something there no no, she's gonna say something on the personal anecdotes and stuff because I think for me I have taken seeing this whole situation is very very serious and very mm-hmm. scary the whole time and i think that the re- i actually think the reason why and this is something that like other people have spoken to when i've kind of been getting pissed off with everyone like it's because mm-hmm. i meet people who are experiencing mm-hmm. this like at work at, at so I'm, I'm a medical student and i'm on placement and i i meet people who have lost family members or who have mm. i meet people who have subsequently passed away like after i've like seen them and heard their story and heard mm-hmm. different things and they're impacted not only from getting COVID, but also from how this has affected like social services and how this has affected people's lives in general and how this has made life much harder for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think it's the human aspect. Cause for me, even like looking at the statistics and the numbers, there's a point at which you get overwhelmed by that. Um, yeah. But then when you bring it back to like one person, like for me, when I'm thinking of this, this kind of crisis I always remember the patients that I've seen that have been impacted mm. like they're the ones that come to my mind not so much like the numbers or not so much graphs or all these kind of other things that I think can get too overwhelming that people don't like I don't even check the graphs and, and yeah, yeah, things yeah. anymore because yeah. I just like I can't do that but I can focus on these individuals and I can care about them mm. and do and kind of change my actions for them and in this more like human way so I was going to jump in yeah yeah that. no well actually on that note like um you know, like studying like behavior change is really like when we look at, for example, climate change, like communication stuff is super interesting because like the model that's usually applied from like governments and like other like, um, I guess, like bodies that are aiming to do behavior change around mm-hmm. climate change is it's called the information deficit model. And what mm-hmm. it says is just like people don't have enough information. So I'm just going to bombard them with facts and then they're going to act in a better way. But actually like, oftentimes there's actually you know like the systematic like um i guess like placements of people like not being able to not only just respond to facts but also like not having the ability in toxic systems to respond in positive ways mm-hmm. and i find that fascinating of like how we we continue to think that facts and like you know obviously there are certain facts and statistics and stuff that help but at some point that overload i think just makes people like numb in a certain mm. way as well and yeah I th- so I think definitely it's the personal anecdotes and the emotional connection and like tapping into emotions that mm-hmm. that do like that makes us respond but the other thing that I have I feel like that I see a lot especially here like being based in the UK but I feel like this also applies internationally is this like normalization of failure of our government mm. like you know, like when we, for example, let's just look at like school meals, um, free school meals for kids in the UK and like how how I'm almost used to the UK government, like the British government voting against that mm-hmm. and then having, um, you know, people like communities show up, Marcus Rashford show up and like other people like advocating for change and then the government being like, oh yeah, like, you know, after you all like have like raised our funds, let's do something else, you know, and like mm-hmm. almost like me being so like like I, d- I can't I don't even expect anything good in that mm-hmm. in that sense anymore and like I feel like that's making me actually really scared um of like how how you like how low the bar is but also like how sca- like 
yeah, how normalized we have the failure of our governments um, or the the crises and how they intersect and how we're just like, well, this is just the way things are right now, you know? And yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is also what I think this time has not only exposed how kind of comfortable we can get within crisis and like how much how used to crisis we can get with the coronavirus mm. kind of ish, crisis that's been going on but also it for me at least it's shown me how comfortable I'd got with the crisis we were already in before mm. all of this started mm-hmm. and in the way in which I've wished often to go back to normal um mm. like so often um I was. I wonder if it was okay if I could just read like a paragraph or something I wrote um, in the summer. Um, and I said, I can't pretend I haven't wished for things to go back to normal. These changes have exposed how comfortable my privilege has made me with the broken systems we live in. I often call for huge change for our systems to be upturned and replaced. So it's both strange and revealing to me how often I've wished for normality to return. I realise that this is a normal response to the trauma of everything right now. I realise that for so many of us, normal is better than now. But no matter how much we want it, we can't wish for things to go back to normal. That is a disservice to our world. This crisis has shown that normal was precisely the problem. Flaws in the system, gaping cracks have been exposed. Um, And then Lone Tran, who was um, in a panel by the Rising Majority um, during the summer, said, Corona is the virus, capitalism is the crisis, and we can't deal with the crisis and with the virus and not the crisis. We must wish for more. We must reimagine our world and our future. We must realise how possible a new world and future is, a better future. Um, And I think, yeah, when you were talking about how normalised we've got with our governments failing us, and that's also normalisation of crisis, as as well as just even the pandemic. Mm. It's like, how outside of this pandemic and how has maybe this how used to this pandemic has how has that highlighted to you how you how much you used to either governments failing constantly or just even things like the fact that we have to have organizations that protect certain people in our communities like why should those things Mm. even have to exist that outside of governments like why should like why should there be food banks they shouldn't have to exist that shouldn't be a thing and we've normalized their existence so much. And I was even thinking, I'm reading The Beekeeper of Aleppo at the moment. And I was thinking when reading it, like how bizarre it is that I've normalized the idea of like NGOs for ref- to help refugees and, st- and stuff mm-hmm. and to aid asylum seekers. And how I've normalized that kind of thing when actually mm-hmm. it should be that governments look after people and it shouldn't be that the people saving people, like it, sh- it shouldn't be that... Um, if say that people are making a dangerous crossing in a dinghy, it shouldn't be that the people who are saving them aren't the coast. Like it should be that it shouldn't be that it has to be like a group of volunteers in a boat who go and help them. It should be mm-hmm. like kind of more than that. And I realized how much I normalized like, Oh, it has to be those things. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think in many ways I understand and like I agree as well but I don't think that like the way that our government for example is set up I don't Mm. think that like governments will save people I think what I hope from for example a government is especially in the UK where in many ways it is really centralized to London for example Mm -hmm. like the UK you know they have um they have a big budget they have all of this like power they should be delegating like almost like you know they're responsible for certain laws and stuff and like the certain like kind of like national overseas but actually they should be 
like empowering local councils to mm-hmm. be really like engaged with their citizens rather than like London dictating what the small community in Coventry mm-hmm. should be doing through A, B and C because they will never be able to understand the context. So I don't really expect like the government, like Westminster to save people. Um, mm-hmm. But what I do hope, you know, like what I think was what I meant around like I've gotten so used to the government failing is like that I don't even I don't even expect them to do any better. And like obviously that's mm-hmm. not to say that like all members of parliament are in that. Like I think it's just like the overall and like like you were saying as well, like I really I really re- like that really resonated with me around like how we've gotten so normalized to, for example, aid and charity mm. and fundraising for the NHS and you know, saving this and saving that that actually like all of these things are just plasters to cover up the wound Mm -hmm. whereas actually we should be tending to the sickness that is in our society in general like Mm -hmm. and with sickness I mean like metaphorically for capitalism and injustices and Mm -hmm. you know like no one should be on a boat in the Mediterranean ever like yeah while I obviously you know I'm so glad that people are doing rescue Mm -hmm. and I'm like I have like the most like the like the most respect for, for for people also you know doing other charity work and everything mm-hmm. but it is just a means to the end whereas like like you know that's just like kind of looking after the crisis whereas actually we should be preventing crises mm-hmm. and we should like have like more mechanisms in place where we don't actually get to a place where anyone has to be on the boat mm-hmm. like yeah so I've just been thinking a lot about like where I in my personal life basically like you know I'm ignorant to certain crises um where I have normalized certain crises and also where I have practices that help me to like basically like not desensitize myself to crisis so like for me that usually is around like for example movies like I find it really difficult to um watch movies that are violent um whether that's like physical or mental um violence and like manipulation to others um and and therefore like for me like I've had like a lot of conversations with others where it I was being told you know like oh just like buckle up like this is the real world like stop being so naive but like for me I think there's certain things that like I don't ever want to get desensitized to and like if that's if that means like I don't watch certain things um because I want to stay vigilant about crises then you know that's like really important whilst obviously not being ignorant to actually what's going on in the world and um so I I just I guess like I just used like then different outlets and I had a really interesting conversation with my parents actually recently where like they they watched the series and I was like oh you know like do you think I would be able to watch it and they're like absolutely no but then I was telling them about a book which is um which was from the like about a girl that was stolen from uh, Boko Haram and about like her story um in in that um yeah like her I guess like her like story and also like then having escaped and like her life story afterwards and and they were kind of saying how it's so interesting that I can't watch like fiction violence mm. but I'm you know I kind of like tend more to like reality based stories and for me that's something that like I try to figure out like how much of also like, you know, tending to these things and being aware of these things normalizes crisis for me, 
but also makes me aware of crisis. Mm. And so that's something that I feel like, yeah, I'm trying to like be reflective of. And like, I've been thinking about it a lot where, yeah, like where, what are the moments that I also need to take, like step away from it because Mm -hmm. otherwise I get, you know, like I, it's too much and I don't actually, I get too used to it, but Mm -hmm. then also where are the moments where I need to like lean in? And I guess that's kind of how also I started off like the leaning in part, but yeah. But yeah, sorry, that was a long ramble. No, no, that was really, because <laughs> I think what you were saying about, like, I guess checking in on yourself at what things you're desensitized, mm. you've been desensitized from. And it's, it's interesting that also you know yourself well enough that you can't, like, you don't want to expose yourself to the those other things. Because I, I grew up reading young adult fiction that was so violent. I, li- I mm. look back now and think, I think books can get a lot away with a lot more than films can. Yeah. I can't watch, um vi- like, I'm really bad at watching violent films and things. Mm. But I would, I, I, when I was at home, I flipped back through some of the books I read when I was, like, a teenager. And they're wild. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, horrific. Yeah. Like, Never and I do think about, and, and I loved dystopias, which is so weird. Like, I loved reading mm. dystopias. Like, I loved reading books about, like, hellish futures where terrible things have happened mm. and about people who were trying to, like, revolt in that hellish future. Um, and, I don't, and I think a lot of the books that I read, at least, were very much kind of being like, what is our world like today? How can I just, like, dial a lot of that stuff up to, like, 100? Maybe if it's, mm. maybe if it's at, like, or maybe to 1,000. And then, so I think what I was doing is, like, watching kind of a dramatized version of our world and then yeah. seeing people like revolt against that it i think for for me in that context like when it was it wasn't gratuitous violence and it wasn't like and mm. instead for me it actually highlighted things that were going on in our world that i hadn't thought about um at those times when i was like a teenager um mm. i found that that exposure was actually like a good way to get me to care about these things mm. but i can see how i can definitely see how especially like our addiction in society to like, I guess, watching really violent things um, and quite horrific things. Well, yeah, probably mean that when we see these violent horrific things happen in reality, like when mm. they're really happening, that I guess, yeah, probably we are desensitized a bit because we're like, oh, well, I've, mm. I've seen this before, even if it wasn't in a real context. And yeah, and I, I think there's probably a lot to check in on, like where are we being desensitized to things mm. um, and how can we try not to be um too desensitized to things because i've even realized that i can overwhelm myself with information to a point in which things that should move me emotionally don't anymore yeah and whilst i see that as my brain's like protection mechanism there's Mm -hmm. an extent to which i'm like maybe i shouldn't overwhelm myself with that same information because then i'm not going to be able to stay as emotionally engaged with this Mm -hmm. um yeah i guess there is this balance between like making sure that we're informed on these things mm. and that we care about these things, but also checking in with ourselves and being like, is there a point at which we could overwhelm ourselves yeah. um, too much? Um, yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's super interesting because I feel like, especially with like dystopian, like, or like dystopian futurism, like anything related to dystopia, like when we look at, you know, like how much, it's so much easier for humans and like we see it in our media to imagine dystopia rather than utopia, utopia. whatever that mm. is, you know. Um, and I, for me, it is, like, because it is based on reality somehow, and like mm. you were saying, like, it is dialed up. And I do wonder, like, I mean, something, like, I'm obviously, 
I've mentioned her before, like I'm obsessed with Octavia E. Butler and her books and everything is about like dystopian futurism. And like, for me, it's really helped me in the last year reading her novels because like seeing like kind of like she taught me like a lot through her books of like, there's no, there's no limit to how bad and how dystopian something can get. Mm-hmm. But something that like struck me so much in her novels is the, the normalization of violence that is not normalized in my reality, like mm-hmm. around me, you know, like how, like the narrator is a child and like the child just walks down the street and like sees someone being shot and like, and she just carries on because it's so normalized. Mm-hmm. And I, and that's, and it, it's all based in California in the U S so for me, like, it really struck me of, like, it's so easy for us to not only, like, kind of, like, um, be ignorant to other people's realities and, like, that they are already living in the dystopia that I imagine. About, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, for example, like, Kyle White, um, an Indigenous scholar from uh, Turtle Island, he talks about this a lot, how Indigenous people on Turtle Island already live in post-apocalyptic apocalyptic times Mm -hmm. and like that's something for me you know like kind of like constantly checks in with me because like like my I guess like the the dystopian that I can only imagine I know that the they are based on other people's realities Mm -hmm. and that's horrific and that's like such Mm -hmm. a horrific thought but also how easy how like fast something can turn you know like we could like I mean and COVID kind of shows that like we were in an normality whatever normality meant and -hmm. then on the next day like something's completely different and people's lives are so severely changed and you know and when we look at like trump's like presidency like how how we were afraid of like a third world war and like his like nuclear bombs and stuff like those things and like and i do wonder like how also for example like trump has like so like much like normalized those feelings Mm -hmm. in you know in like obviously other politicians as well but like that there is just like a level of oh yeah like i'm just checking the news like you know um oh yeah this 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 happened let's go to like watch my football again like that Mm -hmm. is like such a for me yes that's the world we live in it's so complex and like horrific and like beauty live right between each other and -hmm. next to each other but also it's such a mind-blowing thing to be experiencing you know like Mm -hmm. Are you enjoying this podcast? Um, We really hope that you are. The Yikes podcast um, is able to happen mostly because of the financial support from our wonderful patrons on Patreon. Yeah, I mean, Michaela sounds like a super duper appetizing capitalist girl, but actually we're two anti-capitalist babes in a capitalist world. And um, by you supporting like the show, um, it just generally sustains it. It allows us to like pay our guests that... Uh, now and then come on the show and it allows us to do you know much more community work and be able to support different charities and just generally you know make this make this thing happen yeah and if you don't know what patreon is because i think a lot of people might not know it is basically a platform that allows you to support creators or podcasts or different kind of groups that you really like um, and you can financially support their work directly um, and it kind of stops us having to rely on things like ads which are quite annoying yeah Um, (laughs) so on Patreon on the Yikes Podcast Patreon there are different um, tiers that you can subscribe to so they start from just £3 a month and then kind of go up from there Um, for the £5 a month one you get a bonus episode every single week 
um, which is just us chatting about a different thing that's just happened in the news or something personal about our lives um they're much more kind of intimate those episodes um and we really enjoy making them we do q and a's as well over on the patreon and it's just another kind of space that we can interact with you guys and we really love it and we're so grateful for our patrons who have made this show possible up until now and if you'd like to become someone who supports this podcast if you have the ability to do that um then you can check out our patreon in the show notes or just go to patreon.com slash the yikes podcast um and you can check out the different tiers there and sign up to support this show we thank you so much for your support so far and we hope that you're enjoying this episode i guess like part of this and part of the things i think about is how how interesting and in ways like amazing it is that the human brain can cope with a significant Mm. amount of trauma and still function and like people can still function and I guess part of that is having to normalize the crisis like people who are currently living in things that I would read about as a dystopia or whatever um a lot of people yeah in those situations like have to normalize that crisis otherwise what would you do like you'd do nothing um so do you think it's like it's it's interesting and obviously there's a function of it in our in ourselves mm. but there's a point at which i think if, if where at least i'm in my i'm thinking of this from my context and in my context i recognize how some ways that i've normalized crisis is not actually helpful for creating a, a just and better future mm. because my personal normalization of crisis has made me comfortable um due to my privileges because yes. maybe some parts of this crisis don't affect me as much as it affects someone else and therefore mm. I've normalised it and therefore I'm comfortable with it. And any of us who hold privilege in any in any different way, like we are in some way benefiting off the oppression of yeah. the people who are oppressed for those characteristics or social classes or whatever it is. Um, and so for us to normalise crisis for those individuals is us being comfortable with, with their oppression and benefiting of their oppression. Mm. I think that's where, for me, it comes in as this is something that I need to not normalise yes. and not mm. become desensitised to. Because if I'm comfortable with this oppression, then I'm upholding this oppression and I'm mm. not disrupting it. And that's where I think, yeah, that's where I think that there's kind of almost... That's where I think the conflict can be resolved in some way if you look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Because there's a point at which, sure. if, for example, if you are someone, there are some sorts of of crisis that I personally have to desensitize myself from in some Mm. ways out of a survival mechanism. And for me, that is like sometimes a lot and a lot of the time, like violence towards black people. I have to remove Mm. myself from that sometimes because I know that as someone who is an oppressed person from that group, that that will affect me too much Mm. that I can't do anything really. And there's not much like, and there's not much that knowing that stuff can help me with, if that makes sense. Um, However, so just giving some examples, like I have a lot of financial privilege and class privilege and and that might make me comfortable in a system where um, people are experiencing homelessness, where people mm. aren't able to eat, um, where people are living in poverty in this country. Um, and my privilege is what's making me comfortable. My privilege is what's making it possible for me to desensitise myself possibly sometimes to this mm-hmm. crisis. But actually desensitising myself to that crisis isn't helpful to anyone it's not going to help anyone and all it is doing is like as joe likes to say powdering my own ass and making myself comfortable because i'm like (laughs) oh this isn't actually like impacting me personally right now Mm. 
but something shouldn't have to impact us for us to care and especially yeah. if it's imp- if it's not impacting us directly that's almost a call for us to care even more and for us to think and for us to expose ourselves to those issues more and for us to not desensitize ourselves from them so i hope that that has made some sort of sense those kind of examples um because that's i think a way that i kind of think about it so that it's not mm. too overwhelming as well because mm. i think otherwise i might be like i have to do everything and save the and, world be yeah, the saviour the government yeah. wants to be <laughs> but actually like um, yeah yeah I guess it's just checking on ourselves like yeah, what things are you desensitizing yourself from um, to protect yourself mm-hmm. because you are part of that group or whatever and what stuff are you desensitizing yourself from because you recognise you benefit from that oppression yeah. in some way no that's a super super important distinction yeah, definitely. Thanks for those examples. Yeah, and something else that came up when you were like giving those examples is also like how there's sometimes, I guess, like a certain romanticizing of crisis and like how, especially like at the moment, like when we see like the, the exposure of certain injustices and systems of oppression, like how some people that are like, you know, have a lot of privilege are like really trying to find their own oppression. And I think like the white feminism, for example, that we see like that white women are, you know, like having it on their agenda. is like, well, we are being oppressed in this way. So therefore, like, let me put all of the attention on this and like romanticize mm. my own crisis in order to not have to care about other things whilst oppressing other people and groups. And, um, and also like when we like think about crisis in general and like how we yeah I guess like in in just like some way like romanticize it in a way that we are getting obsessed with watching Mm. certain things Mm -hmm. like you know like and um like just completely immerse ourselves in that crisis it doesn't for me at least it doesn't actually help anything towards liberation and collective justice Mm -hmm. because it just like so much focuses on what is happening and mm. um, almost like wants, like it upholds oppression rather than mm. focusing on like, how can we catalyze that for change and how do we listen to the voices that are speaking already on this and mm-hmm. follow their calls for action. And especially when you are holding you that privilege um, and you're deciding to care, um, you know, then, then come, that comes like where the savior narrative comes in as well of like then making decision for these groups of people. And so I feel like when we do like, you know, when we are leaning into crisis and we are, you know, learning more and more, then that's something we need to be aware of as well. Mm. And what you're saying as well, like it makes me think of, uh, like appropriation of oppression mm-hmm. that I feel like I do see yeah, what you're saying about white feminism, um, but also, I, I wish I had the, the article in front of me, but an article came out from The Guardian that said that basically now, nowadays, and if it's a kind of more modern phenomenon, but um, a lot of middle class people are pretending that they're working class or identifying as working mm-hmm. class because they have glamorized struggles so much mm-hmm. um, that they want to believe they're part of, that they've been part of struggle themselves. Um, mm. And it was a really interesting article because it was talking about how like a vast proportion of people who, who's whose parents are professionals they have professional jobs there and um they have they some of them like have been to private school and stuff and they'd still say like they'd still talk about having working class identity um Mm. and then would kind of 
kind of try and like play down the areas in which they have privilege so they'd be like oh yeah it was it was like just a small private school it was it was a cheap yeah. one <laughs> um and it is interesting how how yeah there is this kind of this weird glamorization of struggle which is actually really harmful to the people who actually mm. experience that because it takes away from from those individuals and, and it becomes this kind of ego thing as well which is bizarre and a lot and that i guess that example is, is based off almost i guess this glamorization of this idea of meritocracy which is a part of like what people use to uphold the ideas of like that capitalism is like cool mm. and okay because it's just based on how hard you work and how yeah. like good you work it's not like anyone can achieve good like good mm. things and anyone can achieve um and it shows how much that people have bought into that, that even people who yeah who have experienced so much privilege and everything will pretend that they've they've got everything from a different way i don't know if that like fully like yeah yeah, come to us, and yeah. I, but i think you know that's it's like that's how insidious systems of oppression work in wanting to like you know really like foster that like olympics of oppression and like yes let's yeah, yeah. rally each other up against each other rather than like seeing where we intersect like where do we have common ground even mm. and you know especially then extending like even if you haven't experienced struggle you can still extend and like like your compassion and empathy mm -hmm. and everything to those who have and yeah. like you you don't have to experience something in order to be like you were saying earlier, you know, to like, to act and to care. Like, yeah, you don't have to, have, yeah, you don't have to have struggled um, in order yeah. to, and I think that we need to stop this idea that you have to have struggled. Otherwise you like, cause if you, if you think you have to have struggled in order to achieve any, or got anything that you've got, mm -hmm. you're buying into this idea of, of, of meritocracy and of, and, and actually like, it's just, you're not being honest <laughs> with like the world as it is now and with yourself and with other people. And, that we we need people to just kind of be like honest people of where we've come from and where we're going mm -hmm. and also realize that like we don't have to you don't have to have struggled in order to care about things you don't have to have struggled in order to love people and care for them and to yeah. decide to resist things i guess it's a way to protect privilege and power yeah like you mm -hmm. know because when we to are make not out that honest, it's not there yeah 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 exactly then that means we don't have to give anything up and that but that's not mm -hmm. how we move towards collective liberation so mm. so yeah i guess it's just yeah it's really interesting so like maybe you know like have a look at yourselves as well and like mm. where do we where do you and like we as a collective and individually like normalize crisis and like what are some of the practices that like we can engage with that keep us like vigilant and aware mm -hmm. and you know learn also like expanding our our learning curve to to things that we haven't thought about before you know like there's there's obviously like certain things where crisis is like very like i would say like easy to spot but then there's other things where like they're more insidious and mm -hmm. but they all they all lead towards the same end goal um and if we can only care about crisis that is you know like the end result of other mm -hmm. parts of the crisis like we was like we said before like physical violence for example, is actually something so easy to spot. Um, mm. But the underlying like ideologies and, and all of that is like where, you know, that like sustains that. So like, mm -hmm. yeah, I guess it's something to like think about when like the materials that you read, the things that you, you know, say, even like certain languages. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that we need to like raise the alarm that crisis is here and let people mm. know that crisis is here because um 
I have Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit in front of me and I just happened to open it at the page that says making an injury visible and public is often the first step in remedying it. And mm. I think that a big problem is that a lot of people don't realise that um, before, at least people seem to see that we're in a, in a crisis now, but they don't see that a lot of the crisis that we're in now is just the legacy of the world that we were in before. Yeah, It's the crisis that we were already in just kind of being maybe um, made more visible in some ways. Mm. But with yeah, without without people knowing we're in a crisis, we're never really going to be able to solve it. So I think we need yeah. to we do need to like talk about the fact that we are in a crisis and recognize that we're in a crisis, um, and that we have always well not always but maybe always actually <laughs> been in a crisis of some sorts. Like especially like some communities of people have have mm. been in crisis for such a such such a long time, um, and yeah, we need to kind of be aware of that and and not get too comfortable with things as they are. Like, for example, we've got the vaccine now. Maybe COVID is going to be less of a thing over the next year, we can hope. Um, but once we don't have this looming threat of the pandemic, we can't just stop realising the issues that exist in the world. These mm. th- They'll still be here, sadly. Um, and we kind of, yeah, we have to make the, them visible. We have to talk about them and we have to act um, to create this kind of better world as well. Yeah, I guess like preventative mechanisms are always better than yeah. After like adapting to crisis, um, so so yeah, like the factors that have aggravated the crisis so much, you know, aren't going to go away when the pandemic goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in that way, I guess the pandemic has been a visualizer for mm-hmm. many people to other crises that they haven't been exposed to or have put people into positions where the crisis that they heard about but didn't really believe suddenly hit them themselves. Mm-hmm. And as sad as that makes me that people can people only start to realize these things when they hit themselves or now in a pandemic. I do think that, you know, we do need to take the lessons that we have in front of us right now, like seriously. Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah, I guess that's something that needs to be considered and like how we move forward during and post pandemic and yeah what not mm-hmm. what, whatever comes after whatever comes after <laughs> whatever oh, comes gosh. after <laughs> yeah Thank you so much everyone for listening um we know that this was just like this was a bit of like just teasing out of thoughts i feel um so yeah not not every episode is going to be like us being like we def- definitely but also that's not what this podcast podcast is for we started this no. podcast to have these kind of teasing out discussions to show there's more nuance not to be like social media and say a bold statement and then leave it there and not discuss it like we want to have discussions about it and tease these things out so I hope this episode has kind of helped maybe tease some of this stuff out in your own brain. Um, If people are interested in reading more about like, how can we look at the past and crises and kind of create hope from them? And how can we even look at this pandemic as well and kind of find a way to understand it better? The book that I quoted, Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit is a really good one, I think, that talks about like crises and, and how we can tease hope out of there and act. Um, and then for the pandemic, um, The Pandemic is a Portal was an essay that Aaron Detty Roy wrote during the summer. And um, it talks about like normalisation of uh, or what normality is, um, mm. what the pandemic is and what we should be wanting to bring into this new world. 
Um, and yeah, I'd recommend Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, but uh, giving a big trigger warning for um, almost all things violent and crisis related. Um, but yeah, um, so do take care of yourselves reading those, but really beautiful books. Um, so yeah. yeah, you talk about those a lot. I really need to read yeah. them. It's on my list for this year. I'm getting through my long like Long stack of books, books. Yeah. <laughs> um thank you so much for listening we hope that you're all having a good day morning evening wherever you're at wherever you're listening to this remember to subscribe to the x podcast um for more episodes that will be coming out um we hope you're enjoying season three and make sure you also follow the x podcast on instagram and you can dm us with um on the x podcast um with kind of any suggestions you have or any kind of continuation of the conversation um as well and i've been michaela loach i'm one of the hosts and i'm josephine becker and um sound bits and bobs uh, are done by finley moet um and yeah hope you have a wonderful week bye bye yeah that's good okay, cool. Done.